Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of tinted aquariums, or maybe botanical-style aquariums, or just unique aquariums. How's that? Uh, brought to you by uh, your support of Tannin Aquatics, my company, and uh, when you purchase uh, your products from us, it actually helps uh, fund the ability to do this podcast and keep bringing all these cool things to you. So I really appreciate your listening and your support. Anyway, when it comes to managing a botanical-style aquarium, you're already at a sort of a disadvantage when it comes to running a spotlessly clean aquarium, right? I mean, you've already committed to a tank which contains large quantities of materials, most of which are in the process of breaking down at any given time. <laughs> Correction, actually, all of them are in the process of breaking down at any given time. So what's the implication of all this stuff breaking down in our tanks? Now, there must be a thousand ways to set up an aquarium and operate it. In fact, it's probably several times that amount, but no one could ever seem to argue what the best way to go is, and that's okay. There's a lot of cool approaches you can, you know, can try, and while we might disagree on what the best approach or style is, we all seem to have a common goal, which is providing the best possible environment for our fishes. Uh, pretty much every really serious aquarium hobbyist can agree on one thing. It's important to have information about what's going on in your aquariums. And observation, collection of data, and interpretation of the information gathered have been keys to our success in so many areas of endeavor in the hobby. And of course, our botanical-style aquariums, you're wondering, how does this all go back to the botanical-style thing? They're a little bit of an enigma. I mean, again, we have these tanks with all the stuff decomposing in the water, yet we manage to maintain high water quality and stability for extended periods of time without any real magic in terms of procedure or equipment. So what gives? Well, of course, not being a scientist makes it kind of challenging for me to make all kinds of assertions about water quality and water chemistry. So at least try to focus on what we want to achieve water quality wise and how botanical style aquariums seem to be able to pull it off given their vast quantities of leaves, seed pods, etc. Now, we kind of had a pretty good handle on, you know, which tests make the most sense for our pursuits. It's a given that ammonia, nitrite, pH and DKH are the key indicators which most hobbyists, you know, will want to know about. And then there's the tests which give us the information about the quality of the environment we've created. Nitrate and phosphate. Nitrate, NO3, is not necessarily considered toxic at a, uh, until it hits a specific level. Although, uh, you know, that's not even, that's argued, arguable among uh, querists. Although a typical rule of thumb is to keep readings under 50 milligrams per liter or better yet, 20 milligrams per liter or less for most fishes at various stages of their life. You know, life cycle. And again, there's no lethal dose, as, in, as I just said, but many fishes can tolerate prolonged exposure up to 500 milligrams per liter of nitrate. Now, studies have revealed that prolonged exposure to elevated levels of nitrate may reduce fishes' immunity, affecting their internal functions and their resistance to disease overall. Many fishes can adapt to a certain extent to a gradual increase in nitrate over time, although long-term physiological damage can occur. And of course, some fishes are more sensitive to nitrate than others, displaying deteriorating overall health or other symptoms at much lower levels, you know, like, for example, discus and other fish like that. Now, one of the interesting things about nitrate is it can and will accumulate and rise over time in the aquarium with insufficient export mechanisms, such as water changes, lack of chemical or biological filtration capacity, etc., exists within the aquarium. This, of course, gives the impression that the fishes are doing okay when the reality is that they're just being exposed to long-term stress. The presence of plants, known for their utilization of nitrate as a growth factor, is also considered a viable way to reduce and export nitrates along with overall good husbandry, you know, stable fish population, proper feeding techniques, etc., etc. Now, in our botanical-filled, natural-style aquariums, I personally never observed measured high level of nitrates. In fact, with good husbandry regime in place, and that means water changes and the, the usual stuff, 
um, I've essentially experienced undetectable levels of nitrate. That's been the norm for my systems. I think the highest nitrate reading I've personally recorded in a botanical style aquarium uh, has been around 10 milligrams per liter. Now, why is this? Well, I personally feel that a well-maintained system, including our botanical influence ones, offer significant medium for the growth and proliferation of beneficial bacteria species, such as nitrospora. I've got this totally ungrounded theory that the presence of botanicals, although itself a contributor to the biological load in the aquarium, is also a form of fuel to power the nitrification process, a carbon source, if you will, to elevate levels of biological activity in an otherwise well-maintained system. Okay, it sounds like a bit of cobbled-together mumble-jumbo, and quite possibly it is, but I think there's something to this. I mean, when you think about it, a botanically rich aquarium with leaves and other materials fosters bacteria, fungi, biofilms, and supports you know, crustaceans and other organisms, which can consume the botanicals as they break down, along with the fish waste and other organics. A sort of onboard biological filtration system, if you will, with the added benefit that the fishes will consume some of these organisms. Perhaps, and I'm reaching here a bit, even the basis for a sort of food web, something that we know exists in all natural aquatic ecosystems. It's something to think about anyway. The other measure of water quality most of us should consider is phosphate, PO4. It's a salt of phosphoric acid in an organic chemical. It's an essential chemical for the growth of plants and other living organisms. Phosphate gets a lot of bad press in the hobby, particularly the marine side, as a contributor to the growth and proliferation of algae, which it is. However, it's really only half the equation as algae only grows if nitrogen is present. So it's a contributor to algae issues and overall water quality, not the main culprit. In the reef hobby, phosphate's been vilified as a growth inhibitor to coral and all manner of additives, reactors, and removal media have been developed to combat it. And the reality, in my opinion, is that phosphate, although a great measure of overall water quality, tends not to become a problem in an otherwise well-managed aquarium. It gets into our systems in the first place via food and will accumulate if the mechanisms are not in place for the absorption or utilization of its removal. So yeah, perform those regular water exchanges. Just another argument in favor of them. Oh, and nitrate and phosphate are typically present in your tap water. So when I espouse the use of an expensive RODI unit to pre-treat your tap water, I'm recommending it as a means to eliminate it at the source giving you at least a good start. RODI units, albeit somewhat pricey, are in my opinion an essential piece of equipment for any serious hobbyist. In general, the water quality of our botanical influenced natural systems is something worthy of a lot of research, experiments, and discussion in our community. There's so much interesting stuff happening right now and many things that we don't even know about. The other thing specifically I'm interested in is how very low pH aquariums are best kept biologically stable. It's a whole new frontier that we're only starting to understand. And those extremely low pH, how do, uh, levels, how does the nitrogen cycle function? Arcanes. They sound kind of exotic and even creepy, huh? Well, they could be our friends. We might not even be aware of their presence in our systems, if they're there at all. I can't help but wonder, are they making appearances in our low pH tanks? I'm not certain, but I think they might be. Okay, I hope they might be. Refresher. Arcanes include inhabitants of some of the most extreme environments on the planet. Some live near vents in the deep ocean at temperatures well over 100 degrees centigrade true extremophiles. Others reside in hot springs or in extremely alkaline or acidic waters. They've even been found thriving in the digestive tracts of cows, termites, and marine life where they produce methane. No comment here. I'm not going to say anything. Uh, they live in anoxic muds of marshes. Hmm, interesting. And even thrive in petroleum deposits deep underground. Yeah, these are pretty crazy adaptable organisms. And the old saying is that if these things were six feet tall, they'd be ruling the world. Sort of comes to mind, right? Yeah, they're beasts, literally. 
Now, could it be that some of the challenges in cycling what we define as lower pH aquariums in the hobby are a byproduct of that sort of no man's land where the pH is too low to support a large enough population of functioning nitrosominus and nitrobacter, the traditional bacteria that break down uh, ammonia and nitrite, but not low enough for a significant population of archaea to make their appearance? I'm totally speculating here. I could be so off-base that it's not even funny, and some first-year biology major who happens to be a fish geek that's hearing this is probably just laughing. Of course, I still can't help but wonder, is this a possible explanation for some of the difficulties hobbyists have encountered in the lower pH arena over the years? Maybe part of the reason why the mystique of low pH systems being difficult has managed to be so strong for so long? Could it be that we just need to go a lot slower when stocking a low pH system? Perhaps. Yeah, probably. And then you think about pH levels in some natural, well-populated blackwater habitats, but well-habitated by fishes, that is, um, falling into the 2.8 to 3.5 range, like we see in these studies. And you have to wonder, what is it that makes life so adaptable to this environment? You have to wonder if this same process can, and indeed does, takes place in our aquariums. And you have to wonder if we as a hobby simply aren't working with these tanks in a correct manner. Maybe there's something missing in our procedure or our perception or whatever particularly when they fall into what we call extreme pH ranges. I wonder if the crashes and the fears and all sorts of bad stuff we talked about in the hobby over the decades were simply the result of not quite understanding the so-called operating system. Things just work differently at those lower pH levels in nature and in our aquariums. Even the toxicity of ammonia is different at lower pH levels. There's a lot of strings to pull here. I think the secret is out there somewhere. I wonder who's running a really low pH aquarium out there. What are your challenges? What are your concerns? What have you accomplished? I'd love to hear. And of course, there's much to learn about the function, both biologically and environmentally, of deep leaf litter beds in the aquarium. We've talked about this a million times, but the potential for significant developments in establishing and managing these types of aquariums is there. The application of leaf litter for multiple functions, ranging from food production to nutrient sequestration, even to denitrification are just a few possibilities. So you get into that water quality thing and you say, hmm, a deep leaf litter bed can function as perhaps a biological filter, so to speak. Even if the processes are not new to the hobby, the approach we take and the viability and performance of botanical-style aquariums is different. It opens up all sorts of avenues to explore. We've just taken our first tentative footsteps beyond what has long been accepted and understood in the hobby, and we're starting to ask new questions, make new observations, and yeah, even a few discoveries, which hopefully will evolve the aquarium hobby a bit more in the future. I'm excited to have you with us on this journey that we're all taking together. Stay diligent, stay curious, stay studious, stay experimental. Stay bold, stay open-minded, and always stay wet. Till next time, this is Scott Bellman. Thanks very much for spending part of your day with me. I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tint.